What was that ruckus? Oh, uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the fall semester blues podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode in the middle of August 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who just this week hired a new D.C. legal defense team. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, Frank, we uh, celebrate the beginning of the school year. <laughs> Always a fun time, and we have a our annual back to school special. There was a time uh, right up to approximately 1.30 a.m. on Friday, July 27, 2017, when we thought this show, in fact, probably would just be a requiem for the ACA, or maybe there'd be no show at all, because to paraphrase friend of the show Ross Silverman's tweet, health law professors all over the country would be too busy rewriting their syllabi to actually be on Twill. <laughs> Luckily, that's not the case, and over the next two special episodes, we're pleased to welcome Welcome back. The Twill All-Stars, Nick Bagley, Micah Berman, Erin Fusé-Brown, Zach Buck, Glenn Cohen, Nicole Huberfeld, and Jessica Roberts. And they're going to visit us for a couple of episodes of pointers identifying the issues to address over the next few months. Some dropped in for a few minutes just to address a single issue. Some lingered for conversations. To part one of those conversations. And Frank, you know what your job is now, don't you? Mm. <laughs> No, I don't, Nick. I'm sorry. You have to ring the old school bell. <laughs> so this is Nicholas Bagley, University of Michigan Law School, and I wanted to talk today about the ongoing controversy over the cost-sharing subsidies. So as I've said before on Twill, um, and as I may end up saying again on Twill, the cost-sharing subsidies are one of the two kinds of subsidies that are available to people uh, who buy insurance coverage through the exchanges under Obamacare. There are premium subsidies that help defray the cost of premiums, and there are cost-sharing subsidies. And these cost-sharing subsidies uh, are their money that goes to insurance companies to compensate them for cutting a break for their low-income customers on their out-of-pocket spending. So if you make between 133% and 250% of the poverty level, and you're buying a plan on the exchange, you typically have a very high deductible. But your insurance company is not going to charge you all of that deductible, and instead is going to cut you a break. What happens next is that the insurance company turns to the federal government and says, hey, federal government, I just cut all these low-income people a break. You promised to make me whole through this Affordable Care Act that you passed. Can you please cut me a check? Um, the previous subsidies have been being they've been being you know paid without legal controversy ever since King against Burwell was decided um, the cost sharing subsidies however have been quite controversial um, there is a legal question of whether they have been properly appropriated so there's no question that the Affordable Care Act instructs the Secretary of the Treasury to make these payments there's no question that the federal government has made a promise to make these payments um, but there is a question of whether Congress has properly appropriated the money to continue making these payments. Um, and the legal controversy was really kind of kicked into high gear when under Speaker John Boehner, um, the House of Representatives sued President Obama to stop him from making these payments. At the time, everybody thought that the lawsuit was 
kind of a publicity stunt. Nobody expected it to go anywhere because nobody had ever seen a lawsuit where one House of Congress had sued the executive branch over an appropriations dispute. Um, but as it happened, the district court decided that, yes, the House of Representatives had standing. Um, I think the court's decision on that front is, is extremely weak and quite vulnerable on appeal, but that's nonetheless what the court held. Um, and then the court reached the merits and said, you know what? The House of Representatives is right. There is no appropriation to make these cost-sharing payments. Um, without those payments, insurance companies won't get money that they're expecting. Um, that means that they're going to have to jack up their premiums in order to compensate for all the foregone revenue. It's going to create real havoc in the insurance markets. Um, but nonetheless, the court said, look, it's up to Congress to appropriate. And when it has failed to do so, the federal government can't make payments, even if it'd be a good idea to do so. And even if those payments are obligated under law, um, I think, you know, as I've written publicly before, I think that portion of the district court's decision is, is probably right. Um, that Congress, when it enacted the ACA, did not speak with enough clarity to appropriate the money to make the cost-sharing payments. Um, regardless, the district court put its decision on hold, and the Obama administration took an appeal. Okay, so that kind of brings us up to speed up until the time that Trump takes office, at which point he inherits this lawsuit, and he has to decide what to do with it. And a lot of folk were very nervous that he would immediately, upon taking office, cut off the cost-sharing payments. Because his lawyers, you know, almost certainly believe, they agree with the House of Representatives that there's no appropriation to continue making. But that's not what the Trump administration did. Instead, the Trump administration and the House of Representatives got together and asked the D.C. Circuit to put this case, which is now styled House Against Price, on hold. They put it on hold pending uh, the resolution of kind of interbranch negotiations over health reform. Well, we've seen how that turned out. And so there's a new question now that health reform appears to have collapsed about what the administration is going to do about the cost sharing pains. And the past few months, we've in the past few months, we've witnessed the White House use the threat of the withdrawal of these cost sharing payments as an effort to to, to force uh, Democrats to the bargaining table and to get them to um, try to, you know, cut a deal with House Republicans over health reform. Um, Trump seems to think that because he can cut these payments off, Democrats will come, you know, running to the table if he were to do so. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, they would, I think Democrats might look at look at what the president is doing and say, hey, you know, they're your insurance markets now. If you want to withdraw the money that makes them operate effectively, you can go ahead and do that. But it's not an especially good idea politically, and you're going to be the one that takes the hit. So, you know, we're not about to save you from yourself. The way I think about it is that is that Donald Trump thinks he's holding all the cards in this dispute, when in reality, he seems to be holding maybe a pair of twos. Are there tea leaves to be read here with regard to the way HHS has given the insurers an extension with regard to being able to set their premiums? You know, I view that as a really equivocal statement, or, you know, maybe the way to think about it is that insurers need the certainty about whether or not they're going to be paid before they set their 2018 rates. The adults at HHS know that the only way that they're going to have the requisite certainty is if Congress appropriates the money to make these cost-sharing payments. And right now, there's at least some legislative interest in making that happen. It's not clear there's any presidential interest in making that happen. And as of now, I don't see any interest from the House or Senate leadership in that, that question. But if Congress were somehow to get its act together in the next two or three months and um, put the cost-sharing payments on a secure legal footing by appropriating the money, then insurers could potentially um, set rates that were quite a bit lower than they would otherwise. And I think that would be good for President
President Trump, good for his HHS and good for people who are buying health plans on the exchange and, and good for Republicans in general. Um, so I think what HHS is doing is, is trying to trying to buy Congress a little bit more time. But I don't think it tells us very much about whether Congress is really going to get its act together. And at this point, you know, I have to say I'm I'm a little skeptical. Um, you know, at the best of times, getting the parties to work together on health care is hard. It's not impossible, but it but it's hard. Um, and I think there are a lot of bruised feelings surrounding health reform. I think there's a fair amount of ignorance among legislators over the volatility or that maybe the fragility of the markets with which they're um, sort of toying at the moment. Um, I think they may also underestimate the kind of public backlash they might face if people see their premiums go up, you know, 28, 35, 42%, um, which is certainly possible if these cost sharing payments aren't made. So, you know, I, I wish I, I wish I could say that I thought anybody knew what these tea leaves said at this moment. But I, I think the short answer is they don't. You know, in this context, I think it's important to look at the the only major new development when it comes to the, the appeal in House Against Price. Um, a group of 16 states led by California filed a motion to intervene in House Against Price. And what that means is that the states wanted to step in as parties. And the reason they did this is because the district court entered an injunction prohibiting the executive branch from making these payments. But the court put that injunction on hold while an appeal was pending. Well, the appeal is still pending, but it would be child's play for the president to order his attorney general to drop the appeal. And were the appeal to be dropped, which could happen, you know, again, the, basically the stroke of a pen, um, then the injunction that the district court entered would spring into force and the payments would stop, which would send an immediate shutter through the insurance industry. So the states said, you know, look, we would like to participate as parties in this appeal because uh, we have interests here. We have interests in making sure that our state insurance markets don't explode. Um, um, which would increase the uninsurance burden in our state, which has all sorts of state-associated costs um, uh, that that result from that. So they said, we're, we're interested in participating as, as a party. And the typical standard for intervention is that the parties are, their, their interests are not adequately represented by the parties that in the existing litigation, and that uh, the intervention is timely. And the states had a kind of a twofold argument on this front. They said, look, first, when Donald Trump took office, it's true, we didn't really know if he'd continue making making the payments or not. He hadn't really announced his his views about you know, his position in this litigation, maybe at that point, it was reasonable to think he would continue defending the Obama administration's position that there is an appropriation to make these payments. But have you read the news in the past few months? No way does that assumption hold any longer because the president has made it clear that he is thinking of turning these payments off in an effort to um, get some negotiating leverage. And so at this point, it is ridiculous, lunacy, in fact, to think that the administration adequately represents our interests. And we really need to be part of this litigation to prevent an immediate dismissal that would really have bad consequences for our, for us. Um, on the timeliness front, the state said, again, you know, look, we, we, we couldn't intervene before because the Obama administration was adequately representing our interests. We couldn't intervene when the Trump administration first took office because it wasn't clear it would stop, you know, defending the same position it had taken before. So instead, what we're going to do is, is intervene at the first available opportunity, which is when we finally know that these cost chain payments really are are threatened. And the challenge there is that intervening on appeal is really something that the, the circuit courts dislike. They disfavor. They do not think it's a usually an appropriate use of judicial resources. It usually throws a big monkey wrench into litigation in a way that, that is um, prejudicial to the parties. Here, however, in kind of a surprise move, although one that I think is correct, um, the D.C. Circuit decided to allow the states to intervene. Um, and this was big news, uh, you know, that the states are 
now parties to this litigation over whether these payments are going to be made. Um, And it's important in that it takes away a very easy path that the administration might have taken to um, terminating these payments. Because, you know, there's nothing easier than just dropping an appeal um, and then blaming the courts for whatever chaos might then ensue. Um, That said, I wouldn't, you know, although this was big news, it's really important. We want to keep an eye on it. Um, I think it is still the case that the Trump administration could decide as a legal matter internally that in its judgment, there is no appropriation to continue making these payments. And in the absence of such an appropriation, regardless what what the court says, um, that these payments can no longer continue to be made. So that's to say that the states have intervened in a lawsuit, but the lawsuit, dropping the lawsuit is not the only way that the Trump administration could stop making these payments. It still has the executive discretion to do so. But if it did do so, I think it would be more apparent that it wasn't the courts making them do it, but instead it was really a conscious decision by the executive branch. And, and, you know, at this point, you know, there would have been an argument back in January, an argument I would have been really receptive to. If the administration had come out and said, look, whether you like the cost sharing payments, whether you hate them, whether you like Obamacare or not, appropriations law is really important. And we think the Obama administration flouted appropriations law. I'm sympathetic to that claim. I think it's right. Um, And it would have been an opportunity to vindicate the rule of law to say, we're cutting off these payments and sending the question back to Congress in order to vindicate the power of the purse vindicate its power of the purse. But the administration didn't do that. And it's now August. And we have Donald Trump making these threats about the cost sharing payments. I think at this point, you know, I think they've surrendered the high road when it comes to the rule of law. And at this point, I think it it really would be kind of a pretty brazen partisan decision to say, you know, we're cutting off these cost sharing payments at this point in an effort to um, juice negotiations in Congress that seem to have fallen apart. Um, You know, how that plays with the public, I don't know. It it depends on what the fallout is. But I think think if you see double-digit rate increases, which I think is very likely if these cost-sharing payments are terminated, um, those double-digit rate increases are going to create real headlines and create real problems for uh, the sitting administration, regardless of whose fault it really is at the end of the day. Um, these are Trump's markets at this point. It's, it's, we keep talking about like whether they can adopt Trump care. There's a sense in which Obamacare is already Trump care. He is in charge of it. And as the responsible official, he, his popularity will rise and fall based on how well it's working. I think there's just no, no way around that. How does this case fit in with the ongoing court of claims actions brought by insurers, Nick? It's a good question. How does this case relate to the ongoing court of claims cases by insurers? So insurers have been complaining for a long time that the that the administration, the Obama administration, failed to make risk corridor payments to them. And these are payments that were designed to buffer them from excessive losses on the exchanges for their first three years. So from 2014 to 2016, if you sold in the exchanges and you lost your shirt, the federal government would make sure that you didn't take too big of a hit. And it was an effort to coax insurers onto the exchanges to sort of make the business case a little easier for them in these untested markets. And because of some appropriations monkeying in the Congress, um, those risk corridor payments were not made as promised. Um, in 2014, insurers received 12.5% of what they'd been promised. In 2015, I think the figure was similar. Um, over the three-year course of the program, we don't have final figures yet, at least not that I've seen, um, but it's estimated that they're owed anywhere between 10 and $15 billion in risk corridor 
the payments that and and in some sense the the dispute in house against price is very similar to the dispute that we're seeing play out in the court of federal claims now so insurers went to the court of federal claims and said look i know you haven't appropriated the money to make these payments but whether you've appropriated the money or not federal government you still made us a promise and that promise is vindicable in court and because that promise is vindicable in court we can sue you we can get a court judgment against you under the tucker act and then we can take that court judgment to the treasury department and an existing permanent appropriation called the judgment fund will allow the secretary of the treasury to cut us checks to satisfy those court judgments so it wouldn't be money appropriated for the risk quarter program it would be money appropriated to pay court judgments which we are entitled to so a bunch of insurers filed suit in the court of federal claims and i've been watching these lawsuits for a long time and i think the insurers have a good claim and so far three different trial courts have have heard have, have, have taken these cases to the merits and two have ruled in favor of the insurance companies and one has ruled against so we've got kind of a two-one split among the trial courts um the cases have all been appealed two of them have been consolidated or at least um if not quite technically consolidated, they're being heard at the same time by the uh, by the federal circuit. Um, and the issue there is, has the federal government made a promise to make these risk corridor payments, regardless whether it's appropriated the money? And uh, the court of federal the, the federal circuit will hear those cases probably in the fall and issue a judgment, you know, sometime in the late winter, spring, maybe. Um, but what what's interesting to watch is is that the claims that are being brought by the insurers that's exactly the kind of claim we're going to see from insurers if these cost sharing payments are stopped. You know, I think people think that, oh, the cost sharing payments will stop. Maybe the government will save a little bit of money. No, the government's going to lose money because for complicated reasons, premium subsidies are going to have to go up. But also at the end of the day, all of the cost sharing money that's been promised will be paid out. It will just be paid out through court judgments, not in the regular course. So instead of using the money to help drive down premiums, we're going to hold the money back and then pay it out at some later date. You know, doesn't make any sense. It's not good policy for anybody. Um, the fact that the risk corridor lawsuits are out there is just a demonstration that yes, when there is money on the table, insurers will file suit. And I think if these cost sharing subsidies are terminated, we will see um, dozens upon dozens of lawsuits filed almost immediately to recover money that they are owed. And I think those lawsuits, you know, the risk quarter lawsuits, there are some complexities about what Congress did or didn't do when it cut off appropriations. Those complexities don't really exist in the cost sharing context. Congress made a very clear promise, and it is, if those payments were stopped, reneging on that promise. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Court of Federal Claims is designed to address, and I think it will address. And of course, the unfathomable and incalculable cost on the way the market operates with this level of instability and, and inconsistent behavior yeah. from the federal government. I think that's right. You know, I think the individual insurance market is delicate. Um, you can make it work, but it's hard, and it takes a willing and capable federal partner to make the Affordable Care Act work. Um, my biggest concern with the Trump administration, it's funny, you know, I think the cost sharing payments, it's a big question. Ultimately, I think that the administration's instinct for self-preservation will prevent it from doing anything too terribly stupid with the cost sharing payments. But I could be wrong about that. Um, my bigger concern in the medium to long term is that making the, the exchanges work requires an extraordinary degree of cooperation between state exchanges and HHS and IRS and between health healthcare.gov and IRS. And what happens if the administration you know, doesn't staff up the parts of HHS that you need to make sure 
ensure that these um, lines of communication and these databases work together? What if it just kind of lets the, the healthcare.gov degrade? What if it doesn't do any kind of maintenance, make sure it continues to function well? Um, you, know, you don't have to uh, burn the factory down. All you need to do is let the gears rust. And I think there's a serious risk that the day-to-day mismanagement that seems to characterize this administration could end up being more damaging to the individual market than even the kind of high-profile shenanigans with the cost-sharing payments. Um, the, the the question of you know whether the individual insurance markets will survive, I don't know. I think I think they will. I think they'll limp along, and then in capable hands um, in the next administration, perhaps you know they'll they'll do better. Uh, certainly, if Congress steps up to the plate and decides that Obamacare is the law of the land and they have an obligation, whether that's a legal obligation or a felt commitment or simply political survival instincts kicking in. I, I don't know. But if Congress decides to step up to the plate here, um, you know, we could we could do a lot of good to try to, to make these markets viable. Um, if it doesn't, I think we're going to see a lot of very angry people um, who, you know, and a lot of these people you have to keep in mind have made choices about their lives on the assumption that the that they'd be able to get insurance if, um, you know, they, they left their job at a, you know, at a Fortune 500 company and decided instead to start their own business, that they'd be able to get insurance in the individual market. Um, you know, I think, it, or they stopped, you know, working full time and decided to become an Uber driver, or they cut down their hours so they were ineligible for their their employer's health care. You know, all of those people are going to face very hard choices about what they do to try to account for the fact that these insurance markets that they depended on you know, may not function uh, the way that they were intended to. And really, that's 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 not like a one of Obamacare's failures. This is this is really very firmly on the administration's head. Obamacare by no means was perfect, but it was basically working for the vast majority of people out there. And that, that may not, not be the case for, for 2018 and beyond. It would be um, beyond ironic, I think, that given all the laws and ethical principles, we suspect this administration uh, has breached that uh, what actually brings, brings it down in the public uh, image is breach of the Pottery Barn rule. Yeah. I think that's right. You know, I keep thinking about all the Russia investigations and how they're playing and, you know, for most Americans. And I think the short answer is it's all a little arcane. It seems kind of inside baseball. It sounds bad, but, you know, since when has politics not been seamy? You know, and again, I'm not characterizing, I'm not saying it's the right view to have, but I wonder how much people, um, how much this will motivate voters. I think healthcare is different. I think this is the kind of problem that, you know, it, it, it comes into your living room. And that's true, even if you don't lose insurance. That's true because, you know, your son or your daughter loses out on their health care or your, you know, uh, nephew uh, is suddenly kicked off Medicaid, even though he was in a drug treatment program for his methamphetamine or opioid addiction. Um, you have people who are suddenly facing really hard choices about whether to pay their rent or pay their health insurance. And those people have family, they have friends. And, you know, right now for us, you know, a lot of your, you, know, you don't hear about health insurance a lot. We don't like to talk about it. It's not something you discuss over beers. Um, but if these became serious life-changing problems for people, they are um, they are likely to become centerpieces. You know, I think if this is closer to the way that the invasion of Iraq really t- damaged President Bush's um, poll numbers, because I think, you know, it took a little while, but people started coming home and they started saying, I don't know what we're doing over here. You know, it's a disaster. It's a calamity. This is a waste. And I think it was people seeing their sons and their daughters coming home, making that case, seeing the, the kind of lived experience of, 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 you know, a war gone wrong that really changed voter perception. I think health insurance has some of that same potential where I think the Russia investigation may not. But look, I mean, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a political prognosticator. Who knows? Uh, What I will say is I think that the Trump administration is playing with fire. And I think there's a very serious risk that it could get burned. 
This is Glenn Cohen from Harvard Law School, and uh, while we've been away on our summer break, the thing that has been uh, of interest to me, or most of interest to me in thinking about back to school, is uh, some new developments in gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9. So Nature just just published a paper from uh, Metalipov's lab at the Oregon Health and Science University that used CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing to correct the MYBPC3 mutation, sounds a little bit like a Star Wars character, which is associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, a heart muscle disease that affects 1 in 500 people. Now, why is this significant? First of all, this is the first time it's being done in the United States. The prior papers had occurred uh, in China in particular. And again, to be clear, this is not implanting these embryos, but even doing this in the United States, I think, was of great interest to many people. Perhaps the more important part of the story is they managed to avoid a problem that the Chinese researchers encountered, and others have as well, called mosaicism. This is the idea uh, that not all the cells are correctly altered, so some of the problematic earlier cells uh, persist. And the way they did this was to do uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 alteration simultaneous with the sperm fertilizing the egg, not after fertilization, which is the way they had done it in the earlier uh, studies. So as a result, uh, they managed to repair uh, the cells with some success. So this is extremely exciting for people who are following this, and of course uh, the media responded with uh, shock and awe. The awe was this is amazing, so many people could be helped. Uh, the shock was the typical uh, discussion of designer babies and slippery slopes and the like. And the truth of the matter is that uh, probably neither uh, reaction is completely warranted. I mean, as my friend Hank Greeley kind of put it, there's a bit of a hope and hype narrative here that some people might find uh, somewhat uh, problematic, that we're going to exaggerate what the benefits are and everyone's going to think, oh, it's around the corner. We're not around the corner to do this in the clinical setting. Uh, but also this discussion of uh, designer babies I think really kind of misses the point. Almost all uh, the early and probably all the permitted in the United States alterations that we'll see eventually are going to be about disease correction. They're not going to be about uh, designing babies. And yes, we might face that down the road, uh, but we're not facing that now or anytime soon. But I think as a result of these kinds of two narratives that we've been hearing, there have been some other narratives that have been missing that are in some ways more interesting. Um, the first is just a question about the need for this technology. Uh, and in particular, uh, the, the populations that would use uh, CRISPR-Cas9 are typically people who are seeking to have genetically related children, but who carry a heritable disease that can't be avoided through other uh, means. So I think there's a legitimate and interesting conversation to be had here about uh, the way in which we construct this kind of right or interest in being a genetic parent, uh, as opposed to adoption or other mechanisms of having uh, children. Now, of course, it's quite difficult to adopt in the United States, uh, especially if you want infants, especially if you want white infants, especially if you want white infants without uh, developmental uh, delays, for example. But I think this has really been submerged in the discussion about why we might need or not need this kind of technology, the importance of investing in it, uh, and also kind of the assumption that the genetic tie is very important. The other, I think, interesting conversation that we're not having enough uh, currently uh, has to do with the question as to whether this uh, technique could be a good alternative for destroying embryos. So the Metalopov group in their nature paper say when only one parent carries a heterozygous mutation, 50% of the embryos should be mutation free and available transfer, while the remaining carrier embryos are discarded. Gene correction would rescue mutant embryos, increase the number of embryos available for transfer, and ultimately improve 
improve pregnancy rate. So there's this very interesting idea that gene editing may be an alternative to pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and discard. We basically fertilize a lot of embryos and then we discard a good number of those embryos. So it raises the question about whether we might actually get uh, a sort of rapprochement between uh, cons conservatives, particularly religious conservatives that have opposed stem cells and other uh, activities that have destroyed embryos and this kind of research. Could this be pitched as a way of saving embryos, rescuing embryos, avoiding uh, their destruction, as opposed to something that is threatening to this community? Uh, or in fact, will we have a dialogue about complicity and the idea that even if it turns out perfecting this research has this good outcome for sparing embryos down the road, the fact that embryos are going to have to be destroyed along the way is problematic. Okay, the last thought I'm going to give on this is just the idea of uh, medical tourism. So we saw uh, actually already medical tourism to Mexico to avoid regulatory prohibitions for mitochondrial replacement therapy, uh, a different technology, but perhaps in the same uh, family. And I think there's an interesting set of questions about whether we'll start seeing uh, medical tourism for gene editing, and then what we'll do with the children who are born through this. If our concern is about germline alterations and avoiding germline alterations and then being passed down to future generations, uh, other than preventing the re-immigration and re-entry of these children, I'm not sure we have a lot of great alternatives. And while I think the current regulatory system in the United States, will, it will be the case that for a long time we will not see clinical use of gene editing in the United States, I would bet that we'll see it somewhere else first and we'll see U.S. citizens going abroad for that. So I continue to think about these issues as well. I'm Micah Berman. I'm an associate professor of public health and law at Ohio State University. A good portion of healthcare law is, of course, administrative law, and administrative rules shape the implementation of the ACA and the operation of Medicaid and Medicare, drug and device regulation, HIPAA, human subjects research, and, and of course, we could go on and on. And so it's important to keep an eye on efforts by uh, both the Trump administration and by Congress to reshape how administrative agencies operate. And so one thing in particular that I'll be tracking closely this year is the impact of the executive order that President Trump issued on regulations uh, on January 30th, uh, 2017. And that executive order uh, does two main things. Uh, first, it says that for every new regulation issued, at least two prior regulations by that same agency had to be identified for elimination. And then secondly, it instructed the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, to set a, a quote-unquote regulatory budget for each agency uh, that would limit the cost that new regulations from that agency could impose on businesses. And uh, OMB has has issued guidance interpreting that executive order, and there are various exceptions to it, and I won't go into the details. Uh, but in my view, this provides a really good opening for health law professors uh, to talk to their students about the importance of administrative agencies and administrative rulemaking uh, to health and to healthcare. And there are lots of different uh, angles and pieces of this to explore. Uh, but at, at the big picture level, uh, the executive order as a whole frames regulations entirely negatively, as if the only thing they do is impose costs on businesses uh, for no good reason. Uh, specifically in the regulatory budgets that I mentioned, uh, those budgets are based only on the costs that are imposed on regulated entities. Uh, the benefits or the, the balance of the benefits for 
versus the costs uh, are not considered. Uh, and so I think it's a good opportunity to talk about the purposes of regulations uh, in various uh, health and healthcare contexts, uh, why we want them, and, and the potential consequences for, for healthcare, for healthcare markets, for public health, uh, if agencies are essentially unable to issue new rules. Uh, so to use a, a just a quick public health example, uh, in the area where I focus, tobacco regulation, uh, the FDA proposed a new rule in January limiting the amount of a very potent oral carcinogen in smokeless tobacco. Uh, the FDA estimated that this rule, if it goes into effect, would prevent about 13,000 cases of oral cancer over the next 20 years. And weighing the, the costs on businesses versus the public health benefits, the FDA estimated that there would be a net gain of about $15 billion uh, over that time period. But under that executive order, the agency has to consider only the cost to the tobacco companies and disregard all of the public health benefits, uh, which is, is I think, uh, completely irrational. Uh, so, so now it's very unclear whether the FDA will be able to finalize that rule uh, or if it decides to proceed. Again, it, it will have to figure out uh, how to pick two rules to eliminate in order to finalize that one. Uh, and, and it's unclear how the FDA would do that. I think it's all also worth pointing out to students that in many contexts, uh, including often in healthcare, uh, businesses welcome uh, new regulatory guidance for a variety of reasons. Uh, those regulations can provide clarity. Uh, they can explain what information agencies need to make regulatory decisions on, on drug or device applications, for example. Uh, they can offer safe harbors. They can revise outdated regulations uh, and, and so forth. Uh, so, so those are some of the big picture issues. Um, more narrowly, uh, the executive order applies not only to rules, but also to, to quote-unquote significant guidance guidance documents. And so it, it provides an opening to talk about the role of agency guidance in healthcare, uh, which is extremely important in practice, uh, but an issue that students might not be familiar with. Uh, and the executive order also raises uh, important separation of powers issues in that it, it provides a severe disincentive for agencies to finalize new rules, uh, even where such regulations have been called for by Congress. And as in the tobacco example that I mentioned, it, it generally makes it difficult for agencies to carry out the mandate that was, that, that was given to them by Congress. Uh, a group of plaintiffs led by public citizen uh, filed a lawsuit against the executive order, largely on separation of powers grounds. And the hearing on the summary judgment motion is, is today, the day that we're recording this. Uh, so there, there should be a decision sometime this fall, and you'll be able to uh, watch with your students how this unfolds over the course of the semester. So if you want to track that, it is a public citizen versus Trump in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. And then as a, a final note, I just wanted to suggest keeping an eye on Congress as well. Uh, Congress has been much more active than ever before in striking down regulations through the Congressional Review Act. And there are various proposals bouncing around Congress, like the RAINS Act and the Regulatory Accountability Act, that would place severe limits on agency rulemaking. So those are important things to keep track of uh, as well as you talk with your students about the role of administrative administrative agencies in health and healthcare. My name is Nicole Huberfeld. I'm a professor of health law policy and management at Boston University School of Public Health. And I am going to talk about what we do with this quagmire that exists after repeal and replace efforts have failed. A lot of people have asked me, oh, what do we do? How do we teach your book? I have a book with Kevin Adderson and Elizabeth Weeks 
the law of American healthcare that we just published a year ago. And the truth is healthcare law is always like running up a mountain of sand. It's just that that mountain is particularly steep right now. And so I think it's worth taking a moment to consider that we need to be teaching the basics right now, because if we don't keep teaching our students the basics, then they won't be able to understand what's happening with any given reform effort. And I think it's particularly notable that the Republican proposals to modify, sort of repeal, sort of replace the Affordable Care Act all worked with the existing framework. They all worked within the existing major federal superstructure. And they might have offered some more choices to the states. They might have offered some more responsibility to the states. But in truth, states' rights doesn't tell you what was happening with those efforts, because at the end of the day, all they were really doing was tinkering with what already existed, which is a major federal superstructure with lots of details left to the states. And so I think it's worth noting that this idea of state flexibility doesn't exist as a federalism purist might think it does. In other words, this isn't states' rights existing completely free of federal superstructure. There is still a federal law. That federal law would offer money to the states to perform particular policy goals, and then states could still make choices within that federal baseline and with federal money. And so at the end of the day, we're not really talking about constitutional differences in the ACA and these Republican proposals. We're talking about laws that have very similar frameworks. And this is something that um, I've been working on with Abby Glock in a paper that we have forthcoming in Stanford Law Review, where we sort of dissect all of these aspects of the new healthcare federalism in the ACA. Um, and that will be too complicated for students, but if you want to sort of do a deep dive on all of this, that it, it's there. So I have a few things I want to recommend to help keep up with sort of both the basics and the developments. The basics, frankly, I think are well covered in my casebook. Chapter two is public health, it is public health insurance. Chapter three is private health insurance. And those chapters really don't change with anything that has been going on. But because this is such a, a quick moving, fast paced time in healthcare reform discussions, I think there are a few resources that I think help the uninitiated to understand what the Trump administration is trying to do from an administrative law perspective rather than from a congressional statutory perspective. So one particular resource that I think has sort of slipped under the radar but is very useful is there's a letter that uh, Secretary Price and Seema Verma wrote to the states in March of 2017, and I'll share it for the show notes. And that letter tells the states what they expect to see for states to be able to achieve what they consider to be more flexibility within the ACA. And there is some key language in this letter that I think would be worth parsing with classes. So for example, this letter says, we have an obligation to tackle taxpayers to make sure Medicaid operates in a way that best serves the most vulnerable populations. That is a rejection of the ACA's expansion to people earning up to 138% of the federal poverty level who are childless adults. That is a rejection of the ACA's inclusion of people who had been excluded from uh, health insurance and from Medicaid specifically historically. And so this is sort of coded language that you can find if you're looking at these kinds of documents 
serving the most vulnerable populations. It's expressing a desire to return to only the deserving poor. And so this letter itself is quite revealing because of using this kind of language, this most vulnerable population language. It's very anti-expansion. And there are a couple of good ideas in here. So for example, again, in the Medicaid context, they're, they're saying that they would like to streamline states' processes for complying with federal statutes through state plan amendments. That makes sense. Uh, but they also say, for example, they would like to streamline and fast track waiver extensions. But waivers are supposed to be demonstration projects where states prove that those demonstrations are working. So that's also something to keep an eye on. And finally, they underscore their desire for what seems to be Seema Verma's uh, mantra, which is personal responsibility. They want to encourage employment. Their assumption is that if you're on Medicaid, you are unemployed and someone who's shirking the system. Now, of course, the reason the ACA exists is that people who were working couldn't get health insurance. But there's no acknowledgement of that in this letter. So this letter that's only three pages long is very tightly packed with all kinds of ideas as to what we can see from HHS going forward. So I really strongly recommend this little three-page letter for all of the unpacking that you can do with it. I would also recommend following what's going to happen with the Kentucky application for a demonstration waiver in terms of Medicaid. It is um, a waiver that seeks work requirements. It is substantially similar to Indiana's waiver, but asks for more like we've seen with other waiver efforts. And uh, there's an excellent Kaiser Family Foundation issue brief that just came out August 2017 that sets forth what's happening in all of the different granted waivers and proposed waivers so that if you're looking for a nice breakdown, that's a very recent breakdown of what's happening in all of the state's waiver efforts with regard to Medicaid expansion under the ACA. I would also recommend if you're looking for um, mechanisms for simplifying some of this information, Families USA does great uh, infographics on these topics. The other things that I would suggest should be followed at this time if we want to sort of understand what's happening with efforts to kind of undercut the ACA um, is that Iowa has a 1332 waiver proposal that everybody's watching. And this is an effort to try to work within the ACA, but do it Iowa's way. Um, the members of Congress who are still interested in tax cuts are still going to need to find offsets somewhere, which to me says that Medicaid may still be on the chopping block in terms of funding. CHIP is going to be up for reauthorization in late September. And so that'll be something to watch. And then, of course, there's the ongoing CSR litigation, where recently federal courts allowed state AGs to intervene, which means that the Trump administration can't just undercut cost-sharing responsibilities in terms of the federal government's duty under the ACA to help fund cost-sharing for people buying insurance on the exchanges under the ACA. So there are a lot of moving parts here, none of which really have anything to do with congressional efforts to repeal, replace, or repair the ACA. And I think one way that you could bring all of it together is to do an in-class exercise that I've done with my students a number of times. It is an exercise where I have them come up with their own healthcare reform proposals. I divide them up depending on the size of the class into four groups or six groups. I count them off so that they don't get to choose their own political point of view. So for example, the A group would work for Mitch McConnell, the B group would work for Chuck Schumer and so on. And then I let them take at least half of a class to talk with their group about how they would reform what exists in the healthcare system so far. And then I tell them they have to be prepared to present their ideas. They have to come up with snappy acronyms to name their ideas. They often come up with wonderful PowerPoints. They really get into it and it helps them to see how hard it is to change what already exists. And it helps them to see why it is that we have so much path dependence in healthcare reform. That is a little bit of a time consuming exercise. I find that it usually takes 
takes at least one and a half or two classes. But I also think that it really aids the students do in doing some active learning in trying to understand why healthcare reform is so difficult, which seemed to surprise the president. Do you have any thoughts about any legal jeopardy that you see HHS, CMS incurring as they go about this unwanted shepherding of the ACA? I think it's a really hard question. It depends on how seriously we can take the requirement that the executive branch under Article 2 take care that the laws be faithfully executed. In my view, Secretary Price and Seema Verma are dangerously close to not taking care that laws be faithfully executed. But really, it's the president who has that responsibility. And who would litigate that? That's impossible to litigate. Uh, So then the question becomes, how are they responding to individual issues rather than, you know, what do we think of the constitutional question? And so, for example, with work requirements, the Medicaid Act is about medical assistance. And it is a falsity that people who need Medicaid for health insurance coverage are not working. Further, in terms of the purpose of the Medicaid Act and whether it's appropriate to grant a demonstration waiver for work requirements, work requirements have nothing to do with medical assistance. Now, we could certainly have a conversation about the psychology of working in a good job and how it benefits people to feel like they're contributing, you know, to their family's well-being and to their own well-being and to society and so forth, right? Of course, nobody's going to sit here and say that work isn't itself a good thing. The question is, should it be a barrier to health insurance? And the Medicaid Act doesn't contemplate that. And so in my view, that would be outside the realm of an appropriate demonstration project. Uh, Likewise, some states are trying to explore the possibility of partial expansion, which the Obama administration roundly rejected because the ACA doesn't contemplate it at all. There is no statutory provision that would remotely make it possible for a state to, for example, only expand up to 100% of the federal poverty level rather than 138% of the federal poverty level. And uh, the Obama administration rejected that pretty quickly after NFIB versus Sibelius when there were ongoing conversations between HHS and the states as to what optional expansion could look like. But now they're circling back around, I think in part because states want to uh, keep Medicaid enrollment as low as possible, or some states do anyway. And the question then is how far is HHS willing to go to accommodate states that are engaging in quote-unquote demonstrations that don't actually serve the purposes of the Medicaid Act. These are not demonstrations designed to make Medicaid better health insurance. These are demonstrations designed to disenroll or prevent enrollment of people who would otherwise be eligible for Medicaid. Finally, I have to ask, do you have anything cheerful for us? is still the law. And it's not the best law, but it has solid principles. It has facilitated health insurance for millions of people. And to the extent that we can work with that principle of universal coverage and perhaps find a way forward with some bipartisan conversation, I think that's not a bad baseline to be working from. So cautiously positive. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 
And that was the week in health law. Uh, some of our all-stars are on Twitter at uh, Micah L. Berman, at Cohen Prof, at Nicholas underscore Bagley, at E. Foos Brown, at J. Robert S-U-H-L-C. So please follow them if you don't already. And a great thanks to all our guests over two special episodes. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter, joined, of course, by Frank Pasquale, and I'm at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy semester. Mm-hmm.